Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I am Rob Hunt, your host from Linnea Holdings, joined as always by my co-host Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago, Illinois. And we have got a terrific show planned for you today. And let's start it off maybe with our first clip here. from February 5th, 1978, 45 years ago today, from the Unidome at the University of uh, Northern Iowa uh, on the spring, or I guess early winter uh, 1978 tour, which I believe was a Dick's Picks as well. And Larry, I know that you said it was a double box set from what, Dick's Picks 17, is that right? Hey Rob, yeah, it's, um, this show's uh, on Dick's Picks 18 along with a couple of nights before February 3rd uh, from the Dane County Coliseum in Madison which is a place where that have played many a wonderful show. Well, I, I was unfamiliar with the show until I started researching uh, what to put on today, and I came across this one, so I, I didn't hear a uh, note from Dick's Picks, but I, I really enjoyed getting to know the show uh, in preparation for the show. You know, you, you definitely get a lot of sort of this holdover sound that you had in late 1977, so, you know, it's a, a really full sound, much, you know, like what you expect to hear from, I guess, beginning of 77 all the way through midway through 1978, which, you know, arguably people would say is, you know, kind of the peak Grateful Dead period. Um, no argument from me based on, you know, listening to this one. There was a, a lot of uh, energy in this show and a lot of um, collaboration between different members of the band. So a super fun one that you're probably more familiar with. Maybe you can give us a little bit of um, insight as to, to what you know about this one. Yeah, it's um, always been a fun one of mine. Uh, this show's great, and if you listen to the show from Madison, that's really energetic. It's a, uh, it's an interesting tour by them because they're basically going through the Midwest and the Upper Midwest at that in February, for God's sakes. You know, that's not the time you necessarily want to be in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and. Uh, uh, up at your uh, up at the good old Unidome, you know these are places I think that um, uh, might be better suited for the spring, let's say. But nevertheless, uh, the boys are out and they're playing with great energy. They're ones I really enjoy listening to. And you know, when I was listening to the Bertha earlier, when you sent around the the clips for today, the thing that just struck me right away is, you know, last week we were listening to David and the Dorks do Bertha. And, you know, besides the fact that we got some great David Crosby harmonizing on the, uh, on the chorus, it, the song was so sparse and so barely thought out and just beginning to come together, like sounding like certainly had to be one of the first times it was probably ever played live by them. And here's a version that, that's so much more familiar to us. It's just so rich and full of sound and, uh, you know, is, is just one of the things about that song that makes it one of my favorites and certainly my all-time favorite show opener. Um, it, it, it just gets you moving right away. You never hear one where you come away disappointed, uh, no matter where they drop it on you in the set. But, uh, you know, certainly at the beginning, as always, the, where it's designated places. And, uh, yeah, th these are fun. You know, they, they did a number of shows in Dane County Coliseum before they eventually uh, moved into whatever the new uh, the Cole Center, I think, they named after the senator there. But Dane County Coliseum was just this big, huge dome itself, basically, 
that you know they 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 push seats around for basketball. Otherwise, it was just a big gigantic floor, and they they moved all of the risers out of the way, and you had all this room. And when we were there in 1983, it felt very empty. Uh, plenty of room on the floor. You could basically get as close as you wanted, and. Um, they played a great show there in 73 that we've talked about before and in other years, but certainly uh, 1978, early in 1978, you're right, they still have the 1977 buzz going strong, and uh, I think both of these shows really demonstrate that. Nice. Yeah, um, it's funny to me, because whenever I think about Birth, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that, that I, I love about it, but I, I always, there's certain songs that other bands play something substantially similar where, um, where I think, okay, but there's something about that lyric or about that... The, the way they, they do that, sort of like the way I feel like a stranger and uh, split open and melt, you know, have a, um, a very similar ending to it. Um, I always think of the widespread panic song, Imitation Leather Shoes and Bertha, both ending with like, you know, the yelling of, uh, of anymore uh, as the ending of the song. And the other thing I always think about with Bertha is a strange one that there's always like misinterpreted lyrics in Bertha. And at some point, I think we need to do a, a show on the show of just misinterpreted Grateful Dead lyrics, which by the way, I finally realized that there's a word uh, for that, and do you know do you, like do you know what it's called when you misinterpret a lyric? I do not. It's Montegreen, so it's a, a word I was unfamiliar with. And the only reason I know it is I was actually researching the lyrics today. And this is a totally random off-topic one of the Blur song, which is uh, song two, which my son is loving Blur these days and uh, has been listening to a lot of it. And I always thought the opening line of the song two was "I got my head shaved by a Jamoje," which is um, such a funny thing to me. But it's actually I got my head checked by a jumbo jet. So it's completely off on that, but if you listen to the way that, um, that they sing it, you know, that line is one of the most misinterpreted lines, and as I looked on the internet, like, almost everybody thinks, I got my head shaved by a Jamoche, because uh, that's, that's the way it, it comes out, and the rest of the lyrics in that song are, are misinterpreted as well, and so, you know, someone posted, that's a classic Montegreen, and then I looked up Montegreen, and sure enough, that is the, uh, the phrase for a misinterpreted song lyric. Um, but in Bertha, it was always a uh, duck back into a bar door. Um, you know, that some people think it's barn door. Some people think it's duck back into like Novato. <laughs> I've heard all sorts of different interpretations of, of what they think that line is in Bertha. I think it's bar door. It's, it, it is bar door. It's, without a doubt, it's bar door. But I've heard so many people sing it different ways. And I always think it's really funny when, when you hear what the interpretation is of what they think that line is. Well, mine, big one was in El Paso, which I guess is a Marty Robbins issue and not theirs. But... When Bobby talks about running out, he goes, I picked a good one. He looked like a good one, but it's, he looked like he could run. He could run. But, yeah. But I kept, why is he saying he looked like a good one? He looked, why does he keep saying he looks like a good one over him? You know, little things like that. You just eventually figure them out. Yeah. Again, sometimes it takes you looking up on, on you know, Lyrics Genius Knows. Well, now. But when I first looked up, uh, yeah, when I first looked up Song 2, I still was like, that can't be right. <laughs> you know, so it was so far off from what it sounds like. And I was like, it can't be Jumbo Jet. Like, that's, you know, because I, I, no one ever knew, like, I never knew what a Jamoche was, right? And that was something that, like, I used to laugh about with friends. Like, what the hell is a Jamoche? Like, I got my head shaved by a Jamoche? Uh, as soon but, as you, right, as soon as you're making up a word that you don't know, you, you got to figure you're probably slightly off track a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, know, you never know if, uh, you know, you listen to fish lyrics and nothing makes sense. So, well, that's you know, who, on purpose. Yes, exactly. But this could have been as well. Yeah, but uh, but I do think it's fun. I do think it's fun that um, you know with Bertha that, that you get lots of different interpretations of, of what that uh, what the lyric is or what some of the lyrics are. Um, we have a lot to go over today, not just this show, but there's a ton happening in cannabis. Maybe we should talk a little bit about some cannabis news right now. But Let's dive in. The, the topic du jour 
seems to still be interstate commerce. And this week, um, we got probably the single biggest piece of news out of this. And what I would say is probably the most significant piece of news as well, in that um, the regulators in California actually sent a very well thought out legal paper, a nice white paper over to the Attorney General of California, saying, look, from our preliminary research, we believe that we could actually um, go ahead and say that interstate commerce is allowed for, um, for California-based cannabis companies subject to certain things. One, subject to you know, other states having a reciprocal uh, law in place that allows for the importation or exportation. But the question they're asking in general was, do we think we're putting ourselves as a state in any legal jeopardy with the feds um, as we sort of look at this from a supremacy clause uh, perspective? And ultimately where they came out on is we don't think there's any legal jeopardy at all for the state. Now, they made a very clear, bright line distinction between whether it's legal jeopardy for the state or legal jeopardy for the actor that's doing the importation right. or exportation. So as a hypothetical, if company X is going to send you know cannabis from California to company Y in Nevada, the feds could come down on both of those companies, but they couldn't come down on the way that the state has chosen to regulate it, was what the white paper said. It was, you know, from a legal perspective, we believe that as a state, that anything that's not reserved to the federal government is reserved to the states, and we've made a determination that this is how we choose to regulate it, and the feds are powerless to tell us that we can or can't regulate the way we want. Now, if there's a superseding law that is, um, is in direct conflict with what our decision is, then they can enforce as they so choose against that actor, but not against us. And did you read it the same way? Yeah, and I've got a big note in here. It says, it's people, not the states, who will be engaging in the interstate commerce, right? So it's it's like, I I don't really, what are they afraid of, that they're going to lose highway funds or something? I mean, when, when you, if you're going to devote this much time to staying whether or not the state itself, and there, I mean, there's some fascinating arguments that they make in here, right? They go after commandeering and they, you know, they, they come up with this strong... Their argument is anti-commandeering rule means that where a federal interest is sufficiently strong to cause Congress to legislate, it must do so directly. It may not conscript to the states. And I'm thinking, marijuana is a Schedule One. You can't get any more, you know, sufficiently strong than that. Whether we agree with it or not to be there, it is. And so basically, what they're doing is inviting the feds to come into California, and they're saying we don't have to enforce any of it. We don't even have to enforce it if it's interstate. But if you guys want to come in and enforce, so they're, they're kind of like calling the feds bluff on this a little bit, aren't they? They are 100% calling bluff. And the question is whether or not that bluff is, um, is one that could even be called. Because if I were an enterprising medicinal cannabis company and I had a ruling, first of all, this, this is predicated on the fact that the AG of California now has to opine, which is what they've asked for. And it's also predicated that another state that's a contiguous state to California, be it you know Nevada, Oregon, uh, Arizona, or, uh, you know, whoever else that uh, that touches you know California, that they come up with a very similar law. But if that were to happen, let's let's say that um, you know attorneys general in both Nevada and, and California both opine on this and say we agree with the interpretation that the um, the California Campus Commission just came forward with. Then, if I were an enterprising medicinal company, I might want to challenge this because. If I send medicinal cannabis across state lines to another player, well, Rohenbacher Farr, Rohenbacher Blumenauer, whatever you want to call it, specifically forbids the federal government from allocating dollar one to the enforcement as long as you're in strict compliance with state law. So if both these states are saying you are in compliance with state law and we've blessed this, 
then the feds are powerless to do anything because they're prevented from, from going in from an enforcement perspective. Now, on recreational, they could do it, but from a medicinal side, they can't. So if I were a rec company, I wouldn't test this, but if I was a medicinal company, I mean, wow, what an, what an opportunity right now. And so this is actually not just um, you know the, the, the state calling the bluff of the feds, it's the Cannabis Commission calling the bluff of the state and saying, you know, you guys need to come in upon, tell us where we're misguided on this, which, by the way, they raised, in terms of, um, uh, of cited case law, they raised almost every good piece of, uh, of case law that exists in Canvas, including Gonzales v. Reich, including Conant v. Walters, including um, uh, local um, uh, cases that have been sold, as well as Commerce Clause cases that have nothing to do with cannabis. It was a really, really interesting piece of legal reading. It, it, right from a you know from a totally we always you know we talk about nerdy Grateful Dead fans but as nerdy attorneys it's pretty you know interesting in that regard as well because I I was amazed at the amount of you know citation they had to case law I was really impressed by that um, and you know and everything and they but they just keep making statements out here that just you know really really catches my eye. The act does not remain ambiguous on this point. On the contrary, the act itself, the Controlled Substances Act consistent with the concerns that animate the federalism canon repeatedly evinces a concern for the preservation of state sovereignty. Now, of course, this is a state making that argument for state sovereignty. I get it. But, you know, these are pretty strong arguments that they're throwing back in the face of the feds on that. And I agree back in the face of the California legislature as well. Yeah. So my question is, A, will the AG of California um, respond? (laughs) And B, if they do respond, will that give, and they respond in the affirmative, in the affirmative will that give um, cover to another state, be it Oregon or Nevada, as the two primary, you know, sort of candidates, the cover they need to say, okay, let's do the same thing here and see if we get the same response. And I think Oregon is probably the most likely, as it's probably the most liberal in its interpretation of, of the law. Not that that would really mean anything, because no one's going to import or export between those two states. There's just no need for it. But, you know, does that open it up to say, okay, in New England states, now let's start testing the same thing, where there it matters. You're talking about very, very, you know, small markets, very close proximity to one another, where, you know, if you had an interstate compact, now we've talked about this before, between, you know, let's say um, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine, Rhode Island, you know, all the New England states, could they do something there? Now you could move stuff, move goods freely, very, very quickly between these. And the question then is, does the, do the feds even have the appetite to try to stop it? And would they even have the appetite on the recreational side to try to stop it? You know, even though they're not barred from doing so by Rohnbach or Farr, would they actually say, look, this is a low priority in enforcement. The states do have the cover they need. This is unambiguous um, language in each of their state laws as interpreted by the AGs of these states. You know, do we have the, uh, the desire to go in there and try to enforce law against states that, that have already told us they're comfortable with the way this is being enacted. And that's a, now we're getting into Cannabis 2.0 and we have, we've been stuck in 1.0 for a long time. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and you, you touched on this briefly, but here's another part of this that I think seems to be very impressive to me. On the very first page of this thing, they're talking about um, uh, the state law that limits under which such an agreement uh, may take effect, uh, meaning an agreement to allow for uh, interstate commerce. And so it says, in particular, the bill provides an agreement may not take effect unless one of four specified conditions is satisfied. And the one condition that they cite to is 
the attorney general issues a written opinion, but here they are asking the attorney general, they're creating the condition themselves. What I thought was even more interesting about that was that's the only one of the four conditions that they even made reference to. Right. And it says exactly one of the four has to exist. It doesn't say this one plus one of the others. It says this is one of the four. And because this is one of the four, we're going to hold you to account right now and try to get you to respond. I'd like to know what the other three are. And it might be that it, it, it's not required at all for the attorney general to respond. It just might be the easiest low-hanging fruit for them to say we can satisfy this condition with a stroke of a pen by the attorney general saying, I agree with you in your interpretation of the law. And with, with that blessing, you know, as long as we feel there's no uh, legal jeopardy for any state workers that are, that are putting this into action and there's no jeopardy for the state, then, uh, then you know, by all means, companies, which are individuals, uh, as interpreted, uh, co companies are free to act in, in whatever manner they want, so long as the counterparty in the other state has the same, um, has the same cover. What's, what's really fascinating about it is it's very consistent with what we've seen with the whole marijuana movement for a long time, which is that federal restrictions... The, the demand for marijuana is such, and admittedly, it, it's, you know, in the last 15 years, it's been, you know, gone flat, 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 and then all of a sudden straight up in terms of, you know, what people, but just like people did way back in the day, right, when John Sinclair got thrown in jail and everybody for two joints and people had big rallies in Ann Arbor and other places to get him out and, you know, it takes creative lawyering. It takes people who are willing to sit down and come up with arguments that you think, you might not otherwise have ever had to made make. And the interesting thing for me is what other stuff is out there right now that we haven't thought of that could come to the forefront and try to latch on to this same legal reasoning somewhere down the road. There's going to be a lot more. And, you know, again, now that Clarence Thomas has come out and said, as the most conservative member of the Supreme Court, that he believes that Gonzales v. Reich would have been decided differently had it been litigated in 2021 than it was when it was litigated in 2002 or 2001. You know, the, someone's got to be chomping at the bit right now to, uh, to try to overturn you know, the Supreme Court's own decision based on, um, on new information that's come to light, which is the legalization of cannabis by you know, how many states since this was last decided. So the, the, the aggregate effect test and the dormant commerce clause issues that existed prior uh, may no longer be effective in the Supreme Court's reasoning as it was in you know early two thousands when only I think six states had you know legal programs and there was no uh, um, commercial programs in any of those states at that time. There was a couple you know sort of speakeasy style collectives, but that was it at the time. So it's a, a completely different world right now, and it's absolutely ready for someone to actually push the envelope here, uh, especially in light of of California almost opening the door, saying, "Go ahead, companies, you know, make your move and see what, and see what happens." We we think that. You know, we've got the cover, so we're not going to stop you. Um, you know, let's see if the feds will. Isn't this right about the time where the heroic music plays and the D'Angelo brothers come walking out to center stage? Exactly, exactly. You know, with but, Henry right by their side. Yeah, I mean, look, those guys, those guys pushed for a long time and, and unfortunately, ultimately lost. But this is on a, a different issue. This is no longer on on two eighty tax. Like, sort of asked and answered on that one. But uh, but this is the uh, this is the next battleground, and that battleground, you know. I don't mean to say this in a negative way to other states, but this is a battleground for, for national dominance in cannabis. And if California really believes that they are the dominant market, which you know ultimately I've always believed, and nothing's going to sway me from, from believing that, that you know if we can actually start pushing this, and California goes back to taking its rightful place as the, as the most important cannabis market in the world, 
the same way they do, you know, for the United States and wine. You know, we, agriculturally, it makes the most sense to grow cannabis here. It's got the best genetics. It's got the best um, climate. It's got the best know-how. Uh, ultimately, you know, other states should be worried that California is going to start making moves like this because in 10 years' time, that means that, you know, they could be so dominant in, in this game. So it behooves some of these California companies to say, okay, like, are we, are we getting sort of the, uh, the subtle nudge from the regulators to say, you know, give it a shot. We don't think that we have anything to worry about, and very likely we don't think you do either. Um, but we'll see. But this is, look, the, the Oregon lawsuit was one thing. The, uh, the, the next piece of news is another. This is real when you've got the regulators writing an eight-page legal opinion that's going to the AG saying, you know, tell us where we're wrong. And that's essentially what they were doing. Right. And in the meantime, they've given all of us a tremendous roadmap for any one of these issues to the extent they come up in other circumstances. I mean, you know, for lawyers, this is what it's all about, to have precedent. And for too long in this industry, the problem has been there is no precedent because none of this has ever happened before. And what this points out is, you know, over, over the course of a few years, time marches on and legal opinions drop. And all of a sudden, we're beginning to develop a body of law on some of these issues. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, there's a there's story one. Maybe we'll intersperse our, our canvas stories today with a, with a little bit of music or a little bit of fun uh, from February fifth, nineteen seventy eight. But let's let's go back in. We talk about it a lot. There's never that much stage banter, and usually when there is real stage banter with the Grateful Dead, it's normally because there's some sort of an equipment failure, or you know, some other like someone broke a string or something happened uh, that caused them to have dead air that they need to fill. And uh, February fifth was no different. Early in the uh, in, in the second set. Uh, we actually got quite a bit of talking out of Bob Weir, and oftentimes when uh, when we got you know long clips of stage banter, it was um, poor attempts at humor. <laughs> so let's see if we can uh, take a quick listen to, to Bobby trying to make uh, jokes. I think it's his, his famous lumberjack joke. Not only that, but he was skinny. He was real small, and he, he wanted to get a job as a as a lumberjack, and the foreman of the lumber camp. We just didn't see how it was possible, and, and he said, "You know, listen, you're too little." And the guy says, "Well, I can really cut trees down real fast, man. You ought to, you ought to watch me work." And so he says, "Okay, I'll, I'll give you a chance." And he gives him a saw and, and turns him loose on a couple of trees, and the guy takes him down real quick, you know, just real fast. And 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 uh, and so he let him loose on a whole grove, and he took down that whole grove. And, uh, and then the foreman said, well, listen, you're, you're, you're a little guy, but you sure can cut trees down faster than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, where, did you, where did you learn to do that? Yeah, and the guy said, in the, in the Sahara forest. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I got I to give it up to you know, them for making the attempts of humor um, on stage. And that one of, of all of Bobby's jokes is probably one of the better ones. You know, certainly better than Phil's. My dog has no nose, and they go, well, how does he smell? And Phil says, blooming awful. But, but the Sahara Forest joke is, is uh, definitely one that's, you know, it's, it's great dad humor. Well, I mean, to me, when you hear these earlier shows where they're doing it, we may have heard a little bit of it of Bobby in the early 80s, but as they went on, you just didn't get very much of that talking. It, it, it humanizes the show for me, you know? It's like they're taking time out from doing everything. They're connecting with the audience. Lord only knows how high he may or may not be at that moment. And he's certainly connecting with everybody else. And I remember we used to just laugh because it was like we never could really tell if we were laughing at the joke or if we were kind of laughing at Bobby. Not in a bad way, but just that he's like the class clown, right? The kid who would always get up in the middle of whatever when the teacher's trying to make a point and tell some joke and the teacher would 
go ahead and tell your joke and everybody would kind of groan and laugh at the same time because even if the joke wasn't funny, you applauded the effort of the guy who was willing to stand up and do it in the middle of class. That's exactly right. You, you, always, like the, uh, you always like the class clown that uh, you, know, you, you expect it out of certain people, but then there's always the ones that kind of caught you off guard that uh, would come up with a, a great one-liner or something really witty that you appreciate that joke so much more because of the attempt to actually do it. And if it landed, uh, those were always the best ones. Well, and, you know, kind of the problem with Bobby is that, not the problem, the problem for him is is that, you know, the deadhead community is, is, is somewhat small. and Well, even back then, it was still pretty well informed. And when you start telling the joke, the first time you hear it, it's funny. The second time, you know it's coming and you're ready for it. The third time, you're laughing at the familiarity of it. And by the fourth time, you're like, okay, come on. You, you know. got to shelve this. It's like long way to go home. You know, the first time was a novelty. By the fourth time, you're like, just get rid of the song. <laughs> and I was going to say when I, you know, I, I make a point every year of listening to as much of Europe 72 as I can when that time of year rolls around. And all through that tour, he was telling a joke about uh, his little yellow dog. And I won't get into it now. We'll, we'll just play it one day because Bobby tells it a lot better than I do or worse, however you want to look at it. And again, it's funny, it's funny. And by you know, the time you get into the third week of the tour, you're like, okay, why don't you play a song instead of telling the joke? But, you know, again, good for him. He's up there having a good time, and, you know, it's his show. He can do whatever the hell he wants. Yep, agreed. So I think as a theme today, even though we've picked a show from Iowa, which is, you know, kind of a random place and a place the dead didn't play very much, um, thematically, I think this is much more a show about California today. You know, a good California band, as well as, you know, stories uh, that, that all relate to, to kind of California and the canvas world right now that I want to talk about is one that I think is terribly disappointing for everyone that listens to the show. And that's that uh, it appears that um, the Garcia brand of cannabis, the Garcia's handpicked, uh, the company that is behind them, Holistic, has made the determination that they no longer want to um, uh, sell into the California market, which, you know, doesn't seem like that big a deal if it was any other market. But to not have Garcia branded cannabis in California, not just because it's the biggest market, but because it's the Grateful Dead's home market. It's, it is, you know, Grateful Dead and California are synonymous. And to say, we're going to choose other markets where we're going to continue to sell, uh, you know, I understand it from a business decision, but there's times I think that, you know, the, the optics of something um, supersedes or outweighs the, uh, the, the decision from a financial perspective. To totally pull this brand out of the California market just to me doesn't really seem to make all that much sense. Like, how can you not have Garcia-branded cannabis in California? Well, but, I mean, to prove your point right here, Rob, I first got wind of it from our good friend of the show, Andy Greenberg, who, through her uh, business society, Jane, had done a lot of business with uh, uh, with with the people uh, distributing the Garcia brand and was always kind enough to share a little swag here and there, as you know, as it kind of came through. And uh, so, you know, she had a little bit of insight, but she knew about this for a while. Uh, you can't really do a lot of talking about it until the company decides to come out and, and, and spill the beans. But um, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And you do, you do think about it being associated with the state of California. You know, and I wonder if there's a way you can go to them and say, hey, look, you can go anywhere else, but you have to sell it in California. You, you, you have to keep it here. This, this is like our home brand. This is our, there's, there's a world full of celebrities who have uh, endorsed cannabis brands from time to time. And although, you know, probably Willie Nelson's is the best known maybe. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Garcia and Mickey Hart have had theirs. And, you know, there's been others up and down the line. There's very few people, okay, maybe Snoop Dogg or something, but there's very few people who you instantly associate with the whole concept of marijuana than 
any member of the Grateful Dead, but especially Garcia. And this should be like, whatever they, if I was the state of California, I'd, I'd say, we'll give Garcia brand a tax break to keep it here. You got to do something. It, it's just, you're, it's more than bad optics. It's, it, it doesn't make any sense to people who have such a close association of the two. I, I can't tell you how many notices, emails, texts, phone calls I got the other day when this was announced. Some like from Andy, you know, from people who I would expect to hear from, uh, you know, who are, who are in the industry uh, or even, you know, say from you, Rob, but other people, family members, friends, folks who, you know, like to joke around with me about the Grateful Dead because I'm the guy they can joke around with. You know, they don't really know anybody else who knows that. And everybody was picking up on this story. Uh, you know, it wasn't just like a little off to the side that only, you know, deadheads or, or stoners knew about. Everybody knew about it. It really had that. It's like when Garcia died and all of a sudden everybody came out of the closet as a deadhead. You know, there, there's a lot of people out there who this impacts or who know people who it impacts. And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sad about it. I mean, oftentimes we get our, our news stories, you know, for the show from outlets like MJ Business Daily or from uh, Marijuana Moment. This was actually broken by, you know, news outlets all across the country. Uh, SFGate, you know, San Francisco uh, paper, was certainly one of the, the biggest ones to break this story. But Yahoo uh, News picked it up, a, a handful of others did as well. Uh, and look, to your point of not just, you know, our family members, but Garcia's family members are, are still in California. And I know that, you know, when, when I was looking at bringing the brand out, um, you know, through Tuatara Capital seven or eight years ago, you know, one of the caveats was that California was the marquee flagship market. You know, that was a, it, it was almost a, um, a conditioned precedent that Garcia branded cannabis would be in California. And, and more ironically, that means the only, you know, Grateful Dead brands that are in California still, Mickey's, you know, pre-rolls are in. But Grizzly Peak is, you know, Big Steve's line is, is probably the single most successful one and like much more successful than the Garcia branded uh, cannabis is. Um, and that's, you know, like a, a bit of a curiosity. And again, Big Steve doesn't put his name on it. Everyone knows that Big Steve knows that that's his brand. But Grizzly Peak is Grizzly Peak. But it is a top 10 flower brand in the state of California and has been now for, I think, about 18 months. So, you know. It goes back to the question of, you know, do you need a celebrity endorsement or celebrity name on, on your box to sell weed or do you just need quality? And, you know, I've always kind of been a believer that the, uh, the, the quality, like it, it doesn't say, um, you know, Puff Daddy on Ciroc Vodka and it doesn't say George Clooney on Casamigos, right? Those guys made a decision that they didn't need their names on it to, to sell it. You know, Jay-Z doesn't, doesn't need his name on Ace of Spades Champagne. Like all those guys have brands that speak for themselves based on quality and they're smart enough to recognize the quality was good so the brand should sell and they'll promote it wherever they can but without having to you know put their name on the uh, on the label yeah i think that that's a great way to do it you know for the more discerning uh uh the morning more discerning superstar out there who wants to get involved in this kind of stuff and you know we've talked about this before and, and you know i don't tend to see a direct correlation between a celebrity name on marijuana and the marijuana being any better than any other stuff. I happen to like the the Garcia brand, and I thought that that was that that, that was good stuff. But you know, I mean, I, I guess you would expect at a minimum that if they're going to throw Jerry's name on something, it has to be tested by people other than people who don't really know that much about marijuana, right? To make sure you're really working with something good. Look, at the end of the day, what it just tells us is this, Rob, that the good news is is that marijuana is here and it's a business. The bad news is that marijuana is here and it's a business <laughs> because you know it's. It, there's a, there's a whole lot of different considerations now that are being taken into account that 
didn't really matter before. And now they do. And if you want to have, you know, big successful marijuana, you're going to have people who are going to make big successful business decisions. And, you know, in this case, they were willing to blow right through the fact of this, you know, almost unbreakable bond between Garcia and California. And I, I'm still shocked that they did it, but maybe they'll have the last laugh at the end of the day. Yeah, who, who knows how it's going to shape out. And I, I wish Josh Gedderson and the Holistic crew all the success in the world to keep this brand vibrant. I really don't want to see the Garcia brand of cannabis going out of the market. But, you know, back to my earlier statement, if, if your flower is fire, it's fire. Just like Dan with the Grateful Dead, if it's fire, it's fire. <laughs> nothing if not predictable. I don't think you're going to have me pick a show that's got a fire in it or I'm not going to play a sample of the fire. Uh, this one is a particularly ripping hot version, uh, as a lot of the 1978s uh, tend to be. I, I still think my favorite fire of all time is that Horton Fieldhouse from Chicago, Illinois, 78. Uh, arguably, you know, some of the best fires ever played have been in 78, despite the, the 77s getting more of the fanfare. But I think 78 fires are just like insanely good. And this one... Um, you know, we talked about with the J-Rad show a week or two ago, but uh, sometimes it's really hard to decide which, uh, which part to pick. And there's a, a jam at around the eight-minute mark of this one that's just absolutely incredible. And I end up picking the jam that, that closes it out, which is around like the 13-and-a-half-minute mark. Um, but absolutely worth listening to the entire fire because Garcia just like... I love when he doesn't pick a, 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 like one single theme for the entire fire, but in between each verse, chooses a different theme and then riffs on that one until he gets bored of it. And then in between the next verse, picks a totally different theme and then brings it back with the anthematic ending the way he did on this one. But uh, but all the way through, I mean, this, this fire was just ripping. It's hard to find a bad fire, right? I mean, you know, I would, I'm not going to argue with you that, you know, maybe later fires may not quite have the same pack or punch that, you know, some of the earlier fires or the mid-80s fires did. But I never went to a concert where they played Scarlet Fire and came out disappointed in it. Eh, you know, that wasn't really a very good Scarlet tonight. I think there were some tunes that were so, you know, engraved in Jerry's DNA that, you know, when he was playing them and the band was playing them, it was, there was really no way to fuck it up quite frankly. It just, it was, and, and this is a wonderful one. It, it, it's like the Bertha. It's just so full, the whole music. When I, again, when I was listening to the clip that Dan sent over, I had kind of clipped it out of, uh, punched it out of order, and I thought I was going into the lumberjack joke, and I keep waiting for them to talk, and all of a sudden I realize I'm, I'm singing along in my mind to Fire on the Mountain, and I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. He, my bad, I picked the wrong clip, but it just, it's, it's, 
it, it's huge. It's it's great to hear, and this is a really, really good one. And by the way, the Horton Fieldhouse show is a great show. And my son, at, uh, my son Daniel, who's at Illinois State University, and as a junior, his uh, freshman and sophomore year from his dormitory, he looked right down on it. Nice. Yeah. And so, hey, I, while we're talking, I just want the heady version to see where this one ranked. And it actually is ranked number two behind Cornell. So I guess it wasn't just me. And I did not know that until just a second ago. Um, but, you know, I listened. I was like, that's as Titanic of fires you're going to come. And Horton Fieldhouse is, is ranked number fourth on heady. So uh, in good company. And to, to your point, the 1990s still had, you know, there might not have been as many, but as you know, I'm a huge 10, 14, 94 fan. I've, I've made that clear multiple times in the show. But uh, but the other one that, you know, is overlooked is uh, May 26, 1995 from the Memorial Stadium in Seattle, Washington. I was at that show and it was that was like one of the coolest um, uh, sort of spacey, like weird, like sounding uh, fires out there. But it was just incredible. And then even like, you know, like the last ones you know, before Brent passing, Brent's final show, the Tinley Park um, the Amphitheater in, in Chicago, that fire is just like insanely good. And, uh, and you know, that's a, an early 90s fire. So there's, there's a handful I can think of that, that I got a chance to see that I think are, as, you know, as good as anything out there. Um, but yeah, this Unidome one, um, forgive me for, for not knowing <laughs> that, you know, having not listened to this one more. But uh, what a joy to discover it today. It is great. And then when you're going to talk about fire, I love um, September 78 at the Pyramids. That's a great fire that ultimately leads into an ICO that's out of this world. But it's, 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 it's the fire where they're really stretching it out. And you're like, yeah, if I'm tripping and I'm right now in front of the Pyramids and the Sphinx, this is exactly the way that I would want it played. I mean, this is, it's, that's a tremendous version of it. But it, it, like I say, it's hard to find a version of it that doesn't resonate, right? People tell the story about the night they played it in where Seattle went as Mount St. Helens blew, you know, just down the, down the, the highway a little bit. And, and there, there's like, oh, no, we, 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 saw them, we saw what time they were playing it, and we, we clocked with the geological survey information. Right at the same moment, they played it. You know, and I'm like, yeah. why not? I love, to, I love when we covered that show on the show. Uh, it's, it's such a great story. I mean, again, there's the, the serendipity of, uh, of things that are predictably unpredictable with the Grateful Dead. Exactly. So back to, to California cannabis news. I don't know if you got a chance to see, but one of the, the true high flyers of the industry about three years ago one of the companies that took in probably more investment capital than almost anyone else and managed to, I think, blow through about $200 million in cash. Uh, it appears that Flo Kana, who was notorious and, and really well covered by um, 60 Minutes and by other you know major news programs for taking over the old Fetzer Wine facility and turning into what was going to be the biggest production facility in California. And they had a great business model, or so they claimed at the time, of, um, of you know being the group that would buy everyone's cannabis from the northern counties from Mendocino and Humboldt and hey ship it down here and we'll do all the uh, the processing and all the trimming and everything else and we'll jar it and get it ready for sale well um, they've been struggling for a while and you know I've known Mikey Steinmetz their CEO for quite a while and I, I'm sorry to get this news condolences to Mikey and Mikey's team but it appears that uh, they finally decided to to hang it up, or at least they've gone into um, what is being described as um, hibernation, I guess, would be the best way, way to describe it, as they try to figure out if there is a path forward. Uh, I think they're still holding some assets, but, I mean, wow, a company that's that big having uh, having that much trouble um, in the California market, it's just, it's another high-profile California business that, uh, that seems to have um, fallen away. So here's my question. You know, for the people in California government who are interested in the cannabis market, and I would like to think that a large portion of them are, when they see a company this size that fails, 
it's one thing to say that Garcia is pulling out of the state of California. Garcia was a brand that you know was was buying its its flour uh, from lots of other producers. But these guys were producing. These guys are huge, and if if they can't keep their business profitable, what does that say to the state regulators in California about what's going on with their market? Or are they just going to come back to up? They weren't good businessmen, but I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's some fatal flaws in their in their uh, business model initially that they did retroactively try to fix, and some of the issues that they had were um, due to the fact that they'd gone out at a really high valuation, they'd raised money at a really high valuation, which makes it very, very difficult to follow on with a, a down round from an equity perspective. And from a debt perspective, you know, they face the same headwinds that anyone else did, which is it's hard to raise money um, at a time when, you know, no one's paying back on their maturity dates. Uh, no one's able to service their debt stack and the lenders have, have all but dried up uh, and there's no traditional lending available. But, you know, from you know equity investors that we haven't seen any in Canvas now for a couple of years, um, you know, there's no way you can, can go into a business that had such a ridiculously high valuation that was unsustainable and unsupportable and then say, okay, well, you know, for us to take another round of capital, we've got to do it. We're going to cram down everyone else that came before us on the cap table. That's a, a difficult proposition. So some of the headwinds of their own making, but ultimately, yes, I mean, as, as regulators in California, you can't point to that exclusively and, and not say that you don't have a hand in, um, in making things that are already difficult more difficult for these businesses. At a certain point, you know, it, it's not just Flocana. I mean, Flocana is but one of, you know, at least 10 or 12 really big names that have, that have now gone under or in the process of going under that... You know, you can't say they're all screwing it up. You know, you, there's got to be some sort of culpability that's happening at the government level to say, um, if we made things a bit easier, could we have figured out a path forward for these businesses? Because there's there's got to be a real fear setting in Sacramento that if there isn't some sort of retroactive fix, and I don't know if it's like, you know, what New Jersey is doing and some other states are doing where they say, hey, look, we're going to let you have, you know, 280E like tax deductions uh, at a state level, even if they're not available to you at a federal level. You know, we're going to try to make this as tax friendly, you know, for you uh, at, at the state, which California has yet to do. And I, I got a call today from a Canadian banker who I've known for a long time who said, do you think, you know, California is going to do that? And, and my response was, even if they've got the inclination to do so, you know, if you think Trenton, New Jersey moves slowly, um, Sacramento moves glacially. You know, it's, it's an exceptionally slow process to, to get these guys to, to change their minds on how they've created a tax scheme. And, you know, if you were to ask Newsom, Newsom would probably tell you, hey, we just did the cultivation tax repeal. So, you know, what more do you want from us? We're already working with you guys. And the answer is it's not enough. It is just not enough. Even, even though you're starting to see the, uh, the pricing for wholesale canvas level, uh, level out a little bit, and there's been rumors that, you know, 14 million square feet of licensed canopy uh, has been taken offline in the last um, 12 months. You know, if that's true, which we can't verify, if it's, you know, we don't know if that's taken offline just in the legal market and some of that's, you know, now still live in the, in the traditional or illicit market, you know, it, it's hard to get gain a determination of, you know, what that statistic means without having supporting um, information on the other side. But it, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, California still has a lot of challenging days ahead of it. And it's, you know, shown to be true where this isn't just, you know, us, you know, crying out going, oh, poor, what was us? It, it, it's demonstrable by the, uh, by the companies that are no longer there, that, that were big names, that were big um, headlines for the California cannabis industry. So, you know, I'm very hopeful that we see, uh, see some movement, 
but I, I don't think it's anytime soon. And, you know, again, condolences to Mikey Steinmetz and the, and the Flo Kata team who are, you know, a bunch of really nice guys up there. And, you know, I, I wish the, uh, the result was different for them. Yeah. And what you say makes a lot of sense. And, you know, maybe that, maybe that directs the, the, the finger pointing a little bit at the federal government as well. Um, you know, and while Schumer and McConnell sit there and play their little games, you know, in the Senate about who's going to push a bill through and who's going to get credit and who's going to do this and who's going to do that. Companies that are run by good folks and that are, you know, employing people and manufacturing product that's being sold and, you know, feeding into the economy are going by the wayside because, you know, it, it, you mentioned 280E and, you know, my impression is on a state level, that's like nothing, right? By comparison, you know, if, if you can't take the deduction at the federal level, it's, it, you know, you're, you're paying de- tax on what? 70, 80 percent of your income, that that becomes an impossibility, I would think, for almost any business that's trying to make money. And, you know, and then you add in all the problems about not being able to, you know, to really find banking. Yes, I'm sure the bigger guys can find banks that will work with them. But, you know, no no cannabis company is going to ever have the flexibility and the, the freedom to move around in the banking system the way the traditional companies do. And there's no reason for that to be the case. And that's another heavy knee, you know. Uh, that's holding down the company, uh, the the industry. You know, where somebody's saying, "No, this is this is, we're not going to let you get up and do this." And you're like, "Why? Why won't you? What is the issue here that you can conti- you know continue to persist in creating while we in real time see the consequences of these policies?" Yeah, I, I agree 100. percent Anyone that listens to this podcast um, relatively frequently knows that this is how we feel about it. And you know, I really wish that uh, regulators once in a while would take a time to to listen to this podcast as well, because I think we do a relatively decent job of articulating what's wrong with it, like what's wrong with the system, how it's been broken. You know, we can certainly talk about solutions as well, but you know, the solutions require a willingness on the side of the regulators to actually uh, say that they've made a mistake and they're willing to change. And as of right now, you know, no one's invited, uh, you know, the cannabis um, sort of legal professionals to the table to say, you know, educate us on how we can make this thing better. But from a financial and legal perspective, there's a ton of things that can be done if there wasn't such hubris at the governmental level to think that they know better than everyone else. So uh, I, I'm ready, willing, and able to take meetings in Sacramento, um, you know, Rob Bonta or whoever else wants to hear this, that, uh, you know, get me up there. And we can certainly walk through how to make the California market better and, and how to, you know, do it in a way that... Um, that recognizes that we are a producer state and that, you know, you're not going to eradicate overnight an illicit industry, but how do you make it so it's more... um, Like Napa Valley. Yeah, well, how do you make it more conducive to the consumer to access the legal industry than the illicit? And and how do you migrate everyone over? I mean, eradicating something is is creating a better market first. And and once you have, then, you know, once you get rid of the bad actors, then it's very easy to say, okay, now let's, you know, try to, to shape it the way that Sacramento wants. But you can't, you can't leave a, a more efficient market in place that exists on the illicit side and hope that you know a less efficient market is going to supplant it. It just, it, it's an impossibility that they keep thinking, oh, well, why would anyone access something illegal when we've got something that's legal as an alternative? And I got <laughs> two words for you, which is money, honey. <laughs> you know, it's just too well, easy. And quality. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there's, a, that's a whole. We could dedicate a whole show to that. You know, just the black market and the product from the black market and why it's so superior to anything that's available around today. And it, it you know, it, it, it's, it's disappointing because when you don't have a market that's conducive and and open enough to allow these top producers in, 
then you're putting form over substance. You know, it, it's just, it gets to the point, quite frankly, where it's silly. And we, we don't have to go down this road again, but everything about it is hypocritical and so driven by the wrong priorities and the wrong, uh, you know, and, and a misreading and misunderstanding of the industry and the culture. And, you know, politicians who want to come in and just, you know, squeeze a square box into a round hole or whatever the popular saying is, they're really missing the mark here. Yeah, it's just not happening. So, hey, to, uh, to, to let our audience know that we're not just two-trick ponies, that we don't just know, you know, legal um, cannabis law and, uh, and Grateful Dead. You know, we, we are nerds of, of other things as well. Uh, and I think that music in general is, is something that hopefully we've shown a pretty wide breadth of, uh, of artists that have, um, uh, you know, intrigued us over the years. But one of the things I look forward to every year, as I think you do as well, is who's getting the nod to be nominated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, as a lot of people know, just because you're nominated doesn't mean you actually get voted in. You've only got a certain number of years that you're eligible and you only have a certain number of times you could be nominated before you're no longer eligible. So it's always interesting to see who made the list and then which ones are, are voted in and which ones are, are discarded or passed over, uh, either to come back on the list again next year or to eventually just be sort of, you know, cast aside. But this year's list uh, is a really interesting cross-section of not just rock and roll, but you know, just kind of uh, musicians in general. Uh, and I'll read through it real fast, and then we can talk about a couple of them. But we've got Kate Bush, Cheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Iron Maiden, Joy Division slash New Order, Cyndi Lauper, George Michael, Willie Nelson, Rage Against the Machine, Soundgarden, The Spinners, A Tribe Called Quest, The White Stripes, and Warren Zevon. And, uh, I mean, first of all, fantastic list of artists. But my question to you is, of those, which ones are you most excited about and which ones do you think are absolute shoo-ins to get in um, uh, on their first try, or at least on off this list, who's, who's getting the nod this year? Well, you know, shoo-ins, it's always hard to tell, right, because everybody has their thing. I mean, if I look at this list, uh, you know, I, I will freely admit that there's some performers on there who I, I never listened to very much, you know, if any at all, and maybe even one or two who I don't even quite recognize. But having said that, I mean, look, who's going to argue with Willie Nelson, right? The guy's, what, practically 90 years old. He still goes around and plays. He still gets stoned. He's like the essence of a, of a live musician performer. And his, his, his country sound swings more than enough into rock and roll. Um, that I, I would be very surprised. Uh, you know, he, he's in the category. If you don't let him in this year, he might not be around next year. You, you got to, I think you got to really get him in. Uh, I, I, I would go further than that. How is he not already in? Right. Like at right. this point in his career, like how is like I, mean, I think it's some of the people that are in and, and that Willie's not. How do you not have Willie Nelson in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or like in every like music Hall of Fame at this point? Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a very difficult thing. But you know, look, that's why you say you have to account for what's going on. I mean, I, I, if if there was anybody on this list who I would say has to be a shoe in or as close as you can be for your first time, I'd go with Warren Zevon. I, you know, he's universally beloved. He's an amazing, amazing musician. Uh, he wrote songs that everybody, you know, covers to this day. When he was dying, he took the time to put out a new, I mean, a new album. He's just, he's such the consummate musician, performer. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, I like the White Stripes, you know, and while I appreciate Jack and Meg, I'm, I'm really much more of a Jack fan. And, you know, wherever he winds up, I, I cheer for him. So they could certainly get in. You know, A Tribe Called Quest has a lot of, you know, memories from back in the day. Soundgarden uh, went through a stage with them. And Rage Against the Machine, I think, is a band that should get in and might not just because, you know, if, if people don't want to get involved with the, you know, 
political nature of what those guys do. And, and I'm a big Tom Morello fan. I think that those guys, you know, not just play, but, you know, they're, 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 they're bright guys. They're on the right side of most issues. And, um, you know, they got a good sense of humor about it. So, uh, you know, those would be my picks. And that's not to diss any of the other people on the list. They're all fantastic. They're all... Uh, uh, you know, top flight performers, but you know, you got to pick some. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. Warren Zevon would be my pick, but personal bias on that one. I absolutely love the guy's music. Um, what a terrific story he had in, in music. Unfortunately, he left us way too early. Um, but some of the most iconic songs that have ever been written um, in, in both uh, Werewolves of London and, and Lawyers, Guns, and Money, uh, as well as just a, a ton of other um, excitable boy. Like, there's there's so many, so many great Warren Zevon songs. So, you know, Really hard to not want to see um, Warren in there, but you know I think from a standpoint of who I think you know most deserves it, um, you know in, in terms of of pure uh, appeal in album sales, hard to argue against George Michael, uh, and in terms of um, of impact, you know I agree Rage Against the Machine. I mean for me, what a seminal band uh, during a, a period where there's a lot of um, a lot of big name sort of grunge acts and a lot of big name hip hop acts. You know, I'd say as far as like the people that influenced me the most politically in terms of like how do how do I see the world, uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy and uh, and Zach De La Roca from um, from Rage Against the Machine probably had the single greatest impact on me. Maybe maybe the Beasties in some ways too. Like I think um, uh, MCA had a huge impact on me on sort of how I saw like you know um, human issues. But in terms of of society's wrongs and and, and how to recognize those wrongs. No one's more pissed off than Rage, and, and no one you know brought that uh, that anger uh, about what they're seeing to their music better than those guys did in a way that just I think changed minds from so many people of my generation. So I would love to see Rage get in there. Well, and and you know sometimes I think because of uh, you know who they are and, and and you know the fact that they're perceived as having maybe this this larger message than just making music, it, it is kind of hard sometimes. It, no, it's not hard. But it, it, you can almost forget that at their core, they're just great musicians, right? I saw Bruce Springsteen at, at Wrigley Field a few years back, and Tom came out and sang three or four different songs with him. And it just, it was amazing. He fit right in. He played so well. It, you know, they, they really respected one another. And, you know, I mean, these are guys that are really seasoned musicians in so many ways. They just bring this extra element to the to the to the concert with them and that's why i hope that you know people will be willing to you know whether they agree with them politically or they don't agree with them politically and look i'll admit that's a much easier thing to say when you agree right i mean you know if, if you're if you're looking at the the other way around and ted nugent comes up or kid rock i, I can't argue that ted nugent isn't a you know a, a, a solid rock and roll musician he's he's certainly made his mark on it and as, as much as i you know really can't tolerate just about anything he says I would be hard pressed to say that you know he should be denied just because of that. If musically he's talented enough to be there, right? This is for. Yeah. But 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 look, was Cat Scratch Fever Fever nearly as like prescient as um, as Killing the Name of? You know, you listen to Killing the Name of and that song was written you know twenty five years ago, thirty years ago, and you look at the movement now that's happened with with people recognizing that um, you know the, the racism that exists in police forces. Morello and, and Zach called that out years ago years ago you know and, and, and they did it in a way that like was undeniable as far as like if you aren't seeing this like wake the fuck up because it's happening right in front of you and uh you know and a lot of the other stuff that they wrote as well was uh you know was very very charged as well 
but nothing, nothing like Killing in the Name of. And, and by the way, like you want to talk about a song that like, you know, brings people to their feet and gets them fired up to, to sing along with and just, you know, like, and, and that was never my style of music. Like I was never like an angry music kind of guy. Like I'd ski to some like, you know, some sort of angry music just because it was really fun to ski to and, it, you know, it was good aggressive stuff to put my headphones on and really get after a big line. But it wasn't like, you know, I, I certainly wasn't getting off the hill and, uh, and then listening to Rage. Like, that was like, let's get fired up and go ski. Like, not, you know, it wasn't calming down music. No, definitely but, not. Uh, but it was undeniable what the message was. And, and, and the message was real. And it was raw. Well, and you know what? And you got to give them credit, too, because, you know, in this case, they really did put their, you know, money where their mouth is. They didn't, you know, a lot of, a lot of rock acts talk uh, high principles and, you know, a lot of these issues, but very few of them are really actually willing to incorporate it into the music that they're making and, and putting out there for the world. And these guys kind of found a way to bridge both of those, I think, and, you know, have done it as well as anybody. Yeah. And, and I, I applaud them for being willing to be that controversial, you know, like, like you could look at NWA with, you know, fuck the police and some of the stuff that they did and say, okay, you know, that was pretty controversial at the time. But, um, you know, that to me was much more, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I guess I give it up to them for for speaking the truth as well. But uh, but Rage just I, I think brought it to a whole new level in terms of musicianship, in terms of um, in, in terms of creativity in their writing. Um, so I mean, again, personal bias here. I'm a huge Rage fan. It's totally the antithesis of everything else you know I listen to. But in many ways, it's it sort of has that same renegade feel to it that I love about the Grateful Dead of, of speaking truth to power in, in a in a very creative way. And, and, you know, and they're geniuses. Morello, I know he's very well educated. Does he have a PhD? He's, he's a very bright guy. Maybe a master's. He's exceptionally bright. And, and, and he's gone back and, and continued his studies long after, you know, Rage. Like, he's, he's still, still learning. He's still very active. And so, um, so, yeah, I wanted to, wanted to put it out there that, you know, watch that one. Uh, I've actually gotten the chance to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. It's one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. Absolute joy to, to see these musicians get inducted and the people that actually read their induction speeches and then the collaborations that happen. Um, so, you know, absolutely worthwhile watching it when this happens. But, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for Rage. I'm actually also really rooting for Kate Bush. You know, I think for, she's done a, a tremendous amount in her career. She's played with everyone. She did great work with Peter Gabriel. She's done great work with others. Uh, totally underappreciated in the United States. Huge, I think, in, in England. But, you know, Kate Bush is, if, if you're not familiar with her canon of music, she's, she's put out a ton in her career. Uh, and, and I wish she got more recognition. So glad that the um, glad that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, is appreciating her work. For sure, you know, it, it, there's so many good people. You know, we were talking about Cindy Lauper earlier. I mean, you know, she was the soundtrack almost of my college years when MTV was first coming out. You know, and time after time, we'd see that video over and over and over again. And you know, I, I don't know how many whether she's ever been nominated before or not, but I'm certainly glad to see her being recognized for that and, and, and having an opportunity to to kind of step up like that. And I'm always fascinated, you know, when, when a band like Iron Maiden gets nominated because to me that, that brand of heavy metal was always just outside of my my range. Not because I didn't like it, but just it, it didn't resonate with me the same way a lot of the other music that I listened to did. But I recognize that there's a, a huge, huge group of people out there you know, for whom Metallica and Iron Maiden and the bands that really, you know, jam that way are, you know, to them, the, the pinnacle of rock and roll, the good ones. And again, I can't deny that, but, you know, it's always interesting for me to see how the, the, the voters, if you will, vote on this kind of thing and, you know, where Iron Maiden winds up. Yep. And to the hip hoppers, you know, Missy, get your freak on Elliot. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, Q-Tip and Fife Dog, love to see you guys get in there as well. Uh, so, hey, we're pushing up uh, on, on the hour, which is kind of where, where we start to think maybe we should uh, save some stuff for next week. But uh, I know we want to cover uh, Dick's Picks um, new release. I think the Dick's Picks 45, or Dave's Picks, my goodness, as did a, uh, as did a, a Marty. <laughs> Dave's Picks 45 is out. Uh, so October 1st and 2nd, 1977 from Portland, Oregon. I, I think we should probably uh, give that some, some due next week. But, um, you know, to wrap it up this week, um, I have a little bit more from February 5th, 1978 from the Unidome. It is an absolutely titanic U.S. blues to, uh, to close out the show. Uh, there's so much other great stuff on here. There's a clip from Warfrat that I really wanted to feature as well, but I think we might have to save that for another time as well. But definitely, uh, if you're out there and you're not familiar with the show, uh, 2578 is a scorcher from top to bottom. So uh, I will say my goodbyes and uh, see you next week and let Larry do the same and then uh, play us out with a little bit of U.S. Blues. Well, thanks, Rob. Yeah, it was a great show today. Great stuff to talk about. Uh, great music. Love going over the list of uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fames. Um, the Dave's Picks 45 is out. I've just started listening to it and it's tremendous. But uh, the October 2nd, 77 show opens with a Casey Jones that's apparently... Uh, considered to be one of the best ever. So I'm going to be going home tonight and listening to that. So I'm very excited to have a chance to get into that. And uh, we'll certainly be talking about that uh, uh, in the next week or two as well. Uh, quickly, also want to give a quick shout out to our uh, very nice and generous hosts today over at Vangston, Denver, uh, where our uh, producer, Dan Humiston, is holding court. Uh, the proud father of... Uh, of one of the big Vangst people over there. And uh, uh, good luck to all of them. We're, we're big fans of Vangst and, uh, and the work that Carson is doing and uh, very, very proud of them. Uh, and in the meantime, hope you guys all have a great week. We'll look forward to talking to you next time and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry and what they're doing 
to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.